0: Welcome to the Voice of Family Business on Capitol Hill. It's great to have you. With each podcast from Family Enterprise USA, we bring you the latest news, expert opinions, and insights affecting the country's largest employer, the American family business. This podcast is sponsored by Arbach Commercial Realty Corporation, proud to support America's family businesses and family offices. In this episode, we bring you an interesting conversation between Family Enterprise USA's Pat Soldano and one of the country's leading tax experts, Russ Sullivan, a Capitol Hill veteran, economic strategist, and partner at law firm Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Pat and Russ discuss next month's midterm elections and how they'll affect taxes and day-to-day economics for family businesses. And now, here's Pat and Russ.
1: So welcome to today's podcast. I'm Pat Soldano, president of Family Enterprise USA and Policy and Taxation Group. We advocate for family businesses around the country, big and small, and all industries. We have with me today a good friend and associate of mine, Russ Sullivan. Russ is a very interesting individual in Washington, D.C. He has two real passions, and the first really makes him my hero. He is all about fostering at-risk youth. He has served as a legal guardian for 22 teenagers, and that's no small accomplishment. And while he manages teenagers, Russ on the side has become perhaps the most preeminent expert on taxes and tax legislation on Capitol Hill. I guess you could say the common thread between the two is that they're both very complicated, but Russ and I have worked together over 20 years uh, in Washington, D.C., and he is truly amazing and an expert on all economic and tax issues that affect families. Um, when he's not controlling teens, Russ is a senior partner and a shareholder at the law firm of Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shack in Washington, D.C., and he's also chair of the National Tax Policy Group, a very important position, especially for people who are watching tax policy, as we're all doing today. So at Capitol Hill Veteran, Russ serves for nearly a decade as the Senate Finance Committee staff director, where we also got to know each other. Russ has also been chief of staff for Chairman and Senator Max Baucus uh, from the state of Montana. Two more things I'd really like to say about Russ. He has a real knack for watching out what is going to hurt family businesses, and he has a real talent for helping us to translate mind-boggling, truly mind-boggling, federal policy and the U.S. tax code into something that we can actually understand. So I look forward to us getting into all of this. So Russ, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast today.
2: Pat, it's always great to be with you. Looking forward to the discussion.
1: Terrific. So before we get too deeply into the tax issues, I really have to ask you, with your work with teenagers, do you see a similarity between them and working with people on Capitol Hill?
2: Wow. Uh, Great question. It is true, Pat, that when I was staff director of the finance committee, we had 22 members on the committee, and I I have been guardian for 22 teenagers. But I got to tell you, uh, I'll take senators any day of the week over teenagers. (laughs) Um, First... I, I, you know, I would never have contemplated having 22 teenagers all at the same time. And uh, when you work for one of the committees, uh, you have to work with the whole group and all the members uh, all at once. So uh, despite that, I would take working with the members over teenagers.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I find that. that's fascinating and not a total surprise either. Let's, let's talk about those senators. Let's talk about Congress in general and most importantly, you know, the elections. We might as well get it out of the way because we know everybody's going to be interested in this. So let's talk about what are some of the critical tax policies on the immediate horizon um, and you know, give us a little prognostication on what's coming down the road.
2: Yeah, so this election has been interesting to watch. It's is, of course, a midterm without a, a presidential campaign. Uh, nevertheless, there's a lot of issues that are national in scope that are resonating, but not that many on the tax front. Right. I will say we've seen a lot of ads in the campaigns about the increase in funding for the IRS Uh, the $80 billion that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Of course, that money's not going to flow for uh, several years, so we're not going to see more revenue agents and that kind of thing at IRS. Nevertheless, many Republicans have been criticizing that in the campaign. But I don't think tax issues are really, in the immediate horizon, going to impact that much the election. But uh, there are some members who are looking at the things that are coming down the road, and, and Congress is going to have to decide in the next couple of years whether to accept or reject the significant changes that Republicans put in place in 2017. Uh- For individual taxes and pass-throughs, particularly, as you recall, uh, the corporate provisions mostly were made permanent. The individual provisions, like the top rate, like 199 cap A deduction, and the estate tax provisions were made to expire in 2025. So Congress is going to have to decide whether to extend those, change them, or let them lapse. Similarly, we've got now the uh, Inflation Reduction Act with some significant changes on energy tax policy, and Congress is going to have to decide whether to keep those or to modify those. So we're going to see an increasing discussion of both of those.
1: Well, I'm real glad you brought up the expiration of the estate tax exemption as well as the other provisions that were in that 2017 Tax Act because they're very important, as you know, to family businesses and I think that, you know, the end of 2025 is going to be here before we know it, it's, uh, and it's pretty scary. And so we need to continue to remind family businesses and families of those policies. But, but let's, let's dig into the midterm elections themselves, because everybody wants to know that. Uh, you're in touch every day with members of Congress, so you're very close to these campaigns and these races. And so can you tell us uh, some of the races that you see and maybe how they're shaping up in both the Senate and the House, and and what do we need to be looking for?
2: Yeah, so the Senate uh, races are very different from the House. The House races are impacted by the uh, once-every-decade census and redistricting, so most members are running in a district that's different, at least partially, than the one they have served for the incumbents, so that makes a big difference in the House that's not relevant in the Senate. But when it comes down to it, it, it it goes to what is on the American people's minds. And in a midterm election, you know, you usually have a referendum on the current president. President Biden's poll numbers are not very good. It's also usually a referendum on the economy. Of course, the economy is not where e- either party wants it to be, the Democrats or the Republicans. But both of them have their story to tell about whether it was the tax cuts in 2017 that engineered uh, the economic growth of the late 2010s. The Democrats will now say actually their stewardship has helped stabilize the economy, has helped deal with the pandemic, uh, and they will be arguing that uh, they have deserved, based on what they've accomplished so far in infrastructure legislation and tax legislation, to, to be given a retention of control. Uh, No one knows exactly what will be the dominant factors from the economy or whether it's just going to come down to to social issues like the Roe v. Wade decision and the backlash to that uh, or support for that, which most people think favors Democrats. Uh, And nobody knows exactly whether Donald Trump will actually deliver voters this midterm election, whether he will encourage and get his voters out. If he does, uh, Republicans are going to win. Uh, if he doesn't, then Democrats stand a chance. It, I think the Democrats certainly stand a better chance in the Senate than the House. The If you look at the House races, um, the Democrats only have a five-seat majority currently. And so with the redistricting that's controlled by more Republican state legislatures than Democratic, it is likely that the Republicans will take a majority in the House. The question is how large that majority will be. In the Senate, there are too many close races. Both parties have four or five members uh, who may or may not be able to keep their seat, or in the case of a, a vacant seat, particularly on the Republican side, that uh, their candidate might not be able to retain the seat. So I, I think it's, it's we w- we're not going to know till election night, and because Georgia has a, a rule that, someone has to, an individual candidate must get 50 plus percent of the vote, and there are three candidates a race. we may not know Georgia results, we may have a runoff in December.
1: Well, and so are there any other states that you think are kind of in play that people should pay attention to? I mean, we've heard about Arizona, Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah, certainly on the Democratic side, Arizona is, is important for the Democrats, uh, with Mark Kelly trying to retain that seat, Nevada, uh, with Uh, Cortez Masto trying to retain that seat. I've already mentioned Georgia, where Raphael Warnock Mm -hmm. is trying to retain his seat, and New Hampshire, uh, where Maggie Hassan's trying to retain that seat. Those are all going to be close races, and uh, most of them are races where you have a relatively moderate Democrat running. We'll see whether in the cases where Republicans have nominated a uh, a pro-Trump candidate, whether independents will be willing to vote for that Republican or whether they're going to stick with a more moderate Democrat. That would be the the layout in Arizona and New Hampshire. Uh, but you've got also states like Nevada where the, the Republicans nominated someone who's not fully aligned with Donald Trump and is more traditional Republican. And in that case, the question will be, you know, do we see that those Republicans who are willing to run to the middle, uh, are they actually more electable than the ones who embrace Donald Trump? Uh, you've also got two Democrats who are uh, a little bit nervous in the state of Washington, Patty Murray and in Colorado, Michael Bennett. Both of them are facing fairly strong challenges in the, and the polls look fairly close in those states. But the Republicans have just as many problems. Uh, In Pennsylvania, their candidate, Dr. Oz, has has run behind the Democratic candidate in most polls since the primaries. In in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson has uh, been behind in some polls, although I'll point out he was behind in polls the other two times he ran, and, and he always won on election day. Um, And then there are open seats in in North Carolina where Democrats are putting up a good challenge uh, and perhaps uh, in other states as well. So I think we're at 50-50 right now in the Senate. Pat, I would I would bet a lot of money that it's going to be 50-50 or 49-51, I can't tell you which way, uh, when the when all the counting is done.
1: Okay, well, that is very helpful, and I know people are very interested in hearing just exactly what you said in, in terms of those races in the various states. So I'm going to ask you a question that's a little out of left field, but I, I people ask me all the time, so I'd, I'd like to hear your input on this. Uh, we, we all know that the country has become very polarized, um, very polarized right and left, um, We're we're not moderate anymore as a country, which is making things even more difficult to get done in Washington, D.C. And and as you and I have been working together all these years, disappointing. It's discouraging because you want the country to come together as a country, as a population. Um, and so I get asked, what's going to bring us back together? I mean, there was a time when the country was moderate and, the, and, and people got along. There wasn't as much anger. There wasn't as much division. Um, and so do you have... Uh, an idea about what could bring us back together uh, politically in this country?
2: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. One of them relies on the American people and one relies on the states. With respect to the states, we've seen a number of states that are trying to move toward a drawing, at least House of Representative legislative districts, not by politicians, but by individuals, by experts in data and, you know, economics and mathematics. And uh, we see in those states like California and Iowa and Colorado and others, where they do have uh, slowly an increasing number of states where it's not clearly Republican or not clearly Democrat. If, If a number of other states sort of take that approach or figure out a way to draw the lines, not to protect incumbents, which has been mostly the current practice, but instead to just uh, put together a a district that's cohesive from a geographic, economic, and cultural standpoint, you might very well end up with a lot more centrist house districts, which will push candidates to try to be more bipartisan and to try to work with the, the party from the other side of the aisle. Now, in the Senate, that won't work because states uh, lines are already drawn, so we don't have changes there. But in the, the case, in that case, the American people ultimately decide. If, if we had more Americans, even ones that are not wedded to the Democratic or Republican Party voting in primaries, then we would find that the candidates who win the primaries are those who do express that they want to get things accomplished for their state, even if it means working with the other party. We have candidates like that who are running for office now, but they're not winning the primaries as often as they used to. And so some of this just falls back to the American people to go out and vote in the primary and to also then show up and vote in, in November and not leave it to others. And I think if a, a representative majority of the American people did vote, we actually would see a movement back toward less polarization, as you described.
1: Well, that's very, very helpful and interesting. Um, I've never heard it described that way, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And so I think that's a great, great, great answer. And what we need to do is obviously encourage voters to, to vote, as you said, in the primaries. So- um, let's, let's get back into the tax and economic issues specifically. You and I have been working with family businesses for two decades now, and we know how important they are to this country. We know that they generate 59% of the jobs and 54% of the GDP. So let's talk about what are some of those long-term uh, tax and economic issues that could affect families and family. But you already alluded to some of that. Um, The 2017 Tax Act and and that expiration uh, into 2025. But in the 90s, when you and I started working together, we talked a lot about the complexities of the macroeconomic issues and their effect on long-term policy. And when you're at the Fed uh, and there were global uh, logistics issues and climate policy and all these things have been changing uh, through the years. And so let's talk about tax and economic policy kind of in the future, maybe a little more long term, which is I really typically not what people do in uh, in Washington, D.C., and how it's going to impact maybe the next generation of business owners um, and, and and getting them to keep their businesses and pass them on to the next generation, which they would like to do, as you know.
2: Well, sure, Pat. This is one reason I, I do uh, really love working with Family Enterprise USA, as well as the Policy and Taxation Group, is that keep in mind that the issues for family-owned businesses are, are much broader than than just tax. Uh, In the long term, as you've described it, I I suspect that most of our our family-owned business would say, you know, labor supply and cost are a critical issue. We've seen cost of labor going up uh, recently in the last few years significantly. If that trend continues, that can be problematic. We've obviously seen the supply chain challenges that impact not just family-owned businesses, but all businesses. And then inflation, uh, every business, family, business-owned or otherwise, is is facing the issue of of how do we contain costs and where we do have inflation in the production of our products or services can we pass those on to consumers. I think those are some of the big issues in the in the medium term that we see the Fed, you know, some of the rationale for the Fed trying to get control of inflation because these could spin out to be a very difficult issues in the medium and long term if we don't uh, get them under control. The challenge here on the on the on the global economic stage is that Governments are not very good at getting ahead of trends. I mean, we have seen this throughout the the pandemic, where uh, over a period of years, because uh, of efficient supply chains and lower costs overseas, we ended up uh, producing all of our ma- our mask and and much of our medical equipment uh, overseas. And then when we had a problem and needed ventilators and other Uh, medical supplies here in the U.S., we were dependent on foreign uh, countries, and they were providing those for their own people, not for the United States. And so we've seen this push throughout the last two years of Congress responding, and they put in the tax code incentives uh, to produce microchips here in the U.S. We've seen it in this legislation recently in the Inflation Reduction Act for energy to be more domestically produced for us to produce uh, solar parts here in the U.S. Uh, and wind turbine parts here in the U.S. so that we can have energy security. I I think these issues are going to impact family-owned businesses in a great way. Uh, Change is critical, and change always comes. So uh, family-owned businesses have to figure out how are they going to change to deal with the, the change in economy, and the change in consumer preferences in order to compete. But then there are also the the tax issues that, that we've talked about that really are unique to, to family businesses, including the fact that they're structured mostly as pass-throughs, uh, and, and that the success of the business really relies on the ability to keep the Uh, family-owned business within the family and pass it down to the next generation. So I think we're going to see a lot of those issues uh, here in the coming years.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the fact that uh, family businesses operate as pass-throughs because with the work that we've done through Family Enterprise USA, we have learned that 79% of family businesses operate through a pass-through, so an S-Corp, LLC, or LP, which is huge and and so important. And as that legislation changes, as you already alluded to with 199A and other legislation that affects those pass-throughs, we really, really have to pay attention and family businesses have to pay attention. And to your point, next generation, has to pay attention
2: the the battle over whether the top rates going to stay at 37 percent or go back to 39.6 and the other rates whether they'll go back up whether 199 cap expires whether the the uh exemption amount for estate tax uh, will revert back to five or six million instead of 11 million those are going to be determined by the elec- these election results I mean let me be specific if the Democrats somehow retain the House of Representatives and they somehow pick off two of the seats that are currently held by Republicans, say Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, for example, then they could end up with 52 Democratic senators in the Senate and the House still barely controlled by Democrats. If that happened, I'm not saying it's likely, but if that happened, we will see in 2023 a repeat of what we saw uh, over the last two years. In other words, an effort to increase tax rates on entrepreneurs and successful individuals, and we will We'll see it happen much more quickly. The battle won't be a year-and-a-half battle that ultimately ends when cinema, Senator cinema, and Senator Manchin say no to most of the proposed changes. Instead, it will happen very quickly, early in 2023. So that's a critical short-term result of elections that could dictate whether 199 CAFE exists, whether individual rates revert, uh, whether we actually have a reduction in the in the exemption amount. And then if that doesn't happen, if Republicans do take over one or both chambers, I think we are, are relatively safe in the short term, and uh, meaning over the next two years that none of those uh, draconian proposals that President Biden put, put forth in his original budget will be enacted. But there will be a battle leading up to 2024, and we're going to have a big presidential election, and the result of that election will actually dictate what happens on those expiring provisions in 2025.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is that is really critical. Because as you say, if the Democrats control the House and the Senate and the White House, um, all these provisions that were in that Build Back Better Act that were pulled out, that dramatically would have impacted in a negative way, family businesses could come back. And you just alluded to some of those, but other things like valuation discounts being eliminated and grantor trusts being eliminated and not being able to hold your family business stock in your IRA. I mean, there were so many things that could happen. So, you know, it's a really good point. We need to pay attention. Um, and I think I think it's just really critical. So we did have legislation. It was called the Inflation Reduction Act. It did include many of those those things that we both just talked about because. We fought hard not to have them included so family businesses could continue to operate and grow their businesses and add jobs and pass their businesses on to the next generation. Um, And so what's your takeaway on the Inflation Reduction Act? Its name is a little funny because I think it's difficult for government alone to to, uh, impact or at least control, they certainly can impact, control inflation. But, But what do you think this bill ultimately, what impact do you think it ultimately will have on inflation?
2: Well, first of all, let me say, I don't think it'll have much impact on inflation for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, Senator Manchin did want it to be a package that would reduce inflation, and he set some standards by which he thought that if they were met, it really would help reduce inflation. As you may recall, he said that the bill ought to have as much deficit reduction as it has spending and and tax cuts. Uh, in other words, he wanted two to one. if the if the package was a trillion dollars, he wanted to only spend five hundred billion and five hundred billion would be for deficit reduction. But by the time the negotiated bill got to where it could pass in the Senate and ultimately in the House, it really was much smaller. It was really only, $550 billion total. But the deficit reduction, according to the Congressional Budget Office, was only $55 billion. So it was really only a tenth of the size of the bill for deficit reduction. Now, there was kind of an asterisk about the IRS money and whether it's actually going to generate revenue or not. Uh, So maybe the deficit reduction will be a little bit higher than that, but it's not going to be significant in the scheme of our economy. Now, with respect to particular sectors, there's no doubt that the bill is going to reduce prescription drug costs for many seniors because it, it does allow the federal government to negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies. But that doesn't really start till 2024, 20, 2025, 2026. It's down the road a bit. It's not going to be a short-term reduction inflation there the energy investments for renewable and cleaner energy across the board including fossil fuels as well as a zero carbon emission uh, energy sources uh, will have some effect of of reducing prices but not a uh, again not a, a significant amount at least in the in the short term
1: well i appreciate that i think with the time that we have remaining on this podcast i'd like to now talk about the congressional family business caucus Through Family Enterprise USA, you and I and others on our team, and we do have an amazing team, have been working to help Congress form this Congressional Family Business Caucus uh, to help educate and elevate the family businesses in this country so that people really understand who they are, um, what they do the jobs they generate, the good they do for their community, because there is a misunderstanding. First of all, most people think family businesses are all small business, which we know is not the case. There are many medium and large-sized businesses. So we want members of family businesses to come to D.C. and tell their stories and talk to members of Congress. But We are working on getting these co-chairs. Uh, we've recently come up with co-chairs. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about the caucus, how you see it operating, because you've been, you know, you've run these caucuses before. You know them well. Um, kind of what's the organizational structure and, and where do you see us focusing our, our time?
2: Well, yes, Pat. I, over the years, as you and I have and others have, have gone and met with members of Congress and their staff, we, we do see they have a great appreciation for family-owned businesses, but they don't have, for the most part, a great understanding of family-owned businesses. In most of the meetings, a staffer will say, oh, yeah, you're here. The the, the uh, My senator, my representative does care a lot about small businesses. And as you say, we, we need to uh, help educate them about the variety of kinds of family-owned businesses. Yes, most of them are, are self-employed or just have a few employees, but then there are a lot of employees that work for family-owned businesses uh, that em- employ hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of employees. And so we, I, I see this Family Business Caucus as a way to help uh, the members who do care about family-owned businesses to explain to their colleagues across Washington, D.C., in both chambers and even in the administration, to better understand uh, what the contributions of family-owned businesses are to our communities, to the American people, and to our nation's economy. And so I think this group will, will be able to Uh, develop and identify publicly available data about family-owned businesses. I, I think that they will help be able to educate Uh, the the policymakers on uh, the importance of family owned businesses in the context of philanthropy and the the contributions to community development and the safety net that they make in their local communities. I think they also will be able to educate policymakers about access to capital and how different businesses are businesses and that a closely held businesses does not have access to the stock market and how they must uh, develop uh, capital for their expansion. In other ways. Uh, and I also think that we'll be able to explain to them the unique ways that family-owned businesses actually uh, develop leaders for the future and provide unique and innovative employee benefits for the workers who are committed uh, to their cause. So I, I hope that this uh, family business caucus will will be able to make some significant progress in educating policymakers on on all of these issues.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and for the callers that are uh, and for the people that are listening to this call, I would just say that this caucus will be bipartisan. Uh, we have uh, identified co-chairs, both Republican and Democrat, who've accepted the position, Will be made public soon. Um, we will be also it will be bicameral. So that means it will be House and Senate. It will be an organization, again, as, as you know, Russ just said, that will educate members of Congress about the good work that family businesses do in this country and the jobs uh, that they generate. And it will not be a policy organization. So it's not going to take positions on particular legislation. We think that's important because, again, we want to focus around uh, education. So uh, like Russ, I'm very excited about this caucus, and and we hope to have it formed and and all the members joined uh, significantly by the end of the year. So,
2: Pat, do you agree that uh, while the caucus is not going to be focused on taking policy issues, they will be focused on gathering the resources and information from sources like your great family business survey that, that you do every year, and they will be able to get that information uh, into the public sphere in the Washington, D.C. area, which will inform decisions that need to be made on policy issues by the United
1: States Congress. Absolutely. And I think that the members of the family businesses that are going to come to the Hill to testify or tell their story, they're going to tell members of Congress what their challenges are, and that will involve policy issues. But that will be up to them to talk about. Uh, and I, and I, and every, every video I've ever done with a family business in which they're telling their stories, they all talk about the policies that have affected their businesses, both a positive and a negative way. So we will definitely be talking about policy. But as you said, we're not going to take policy positions. Um, So I think that's that's a distinction, uh, but a very important one. So so I'm going to my last question for you, Russ, on this call is really I know this is a busy fall season. Midterms are always a busy time. Everybody's trying to get everything done before they go home and and run for their reelection. And and Congress has a you know, it it always has an ambitious agenda. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about some of the issues that you're working on, um, you know, through this this is the end of the year.
2: Yeah, so Pat, there there are a couple of things. One is the sort of what you want to get done, and, and that in, in my practice uh, surrounds the implementation of the of the Inflation Reduction Act, particularly in the context of the greener energy tax incentives. And so, I'm going to be working a lot with uh, clients of of all sizes and in all industries to try to. Uh, help the Treasury Department come out with good guidance that will facilitate companies being able to uh, adopt, develop, grow or manufacture uh, clean energy components and use cleaner energy uh, throughout their operations. That That's going to be uh, a heavy focus this fall. But there's another side of it, which is, as you alluded to earlier, And that is sometimes you need to to work on blocking uh, guidance and regulations when Congress is out of session that uh, are not good. And so I'm also going to be spending some time figuring out what the Treasury Department might do in the context of estate tax or 199 cap A or other arenas, because we have seen uh, Pat even recently as as President Biden and others Democrats wanted to include free college tuition in Build Back Better legislation, but were unable to get the votes for that, Uh, they then moved and took action in the regulatory sphere uh, for giving a significant amount of student debt related to higher education. And so we saw in that context, and we're going to have some legal battles, it looks like, over uh, how much the president can do without Congress uh, in the education sphere. Now, I know that the administration will be looking at other areas that they can achieve their tax policy objectives. And so we've got to really uh, watch and try to influence the Treasury Department not to do something on valuation discounts or grant or trust or any of these areas that would adversely affect uh, family-owned businesses.
1: Absolutely. Well, Russ, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been fascinating. It's always fascinating having a conversation with you. I wish we could have more of them, quite frankly. I know our family business listeners have learned a lot, and we're going to be looking forward to hearing from you more. And the Brownstein Law Firm, we really appreciate the newsletters that the Brownstein Law Firm sends out. Uh, on sometimes a weekly basis that gives all of our members an update in terms of uh, what legislation and other issues they need to worry about uh, in Washington, D.C. So we look forward to having you back again.
2: Thank you, Pat. It's been great working with you and having great conversations all the way back to the late 1990s on these family business and estate tax issues, and I look forward to uh, many more in the future.
1: Thank you. So to our listeners, we hope you like today's show and we hope you subscribe to our podcast where each episode discusses in-depth the critical issues that affect multi-generational family businesses. You can find this podcast wherever you download your podcast. Uh, Until next time, thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Family Enterprise USA podcast, sponsored by Arbok Commercial Realty Corporation. This is the only series devoted exclusively to the critical issues facing America's family businesses, the families that own them, and family offices. We hope you like this week's show. Please make sure to subscribe and tell others about our podcast. Your voice in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country can make a difference.
1: We look forward to having you listen to us next time.